Father, it's such a blessing that as we worship those words, your praise will ever be on our lips. Father, you're worthy of praise. You're worthy of just exaltation. And Father, not just when things are going well for us, not just when things are are going the way we expect them to go, but Father, you are just worthy of praise. You give, you take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we trust you. We trust that that you put in what we need and you take away what we don't. You are God and we are simply stewards of what is yours. And as as you, Father, um, bless us, we want to bless you even more. Thank you, Lord, for just leading us into this book of 1 Samuel. Thank you for guiding us through these pages, these verses, these chapters. We're asking, Lord, that as you have been speaking to us, that you would continue. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right there, saints, if you would please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. As we continue our journey through this book, last Wednesday we did get through the first chapter. Our goal tonight is to get through here the second chapter. And we're seeing contrasts. Now on, on Wednesday we focused on verse, or on Sunday we focused on verse 15. We covered the whole chapter on last Wednesday, but on Sunday we looked at verse 15 where she pours out her heart before the Lord. And, and I just, I, I love the fact that when Eli, as she begins to just pray and pray and her heart is just overcome and her, you know, her heart is, is moving, her heart is, is speaking, but her lips are moving, and, but no sound is coming out. Eli thinks she's drunk, and, and immediately there in verse 15, that Hannah answers and says, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, contrast. No longer is she a woman of sorrowful spirit. We've seen how instantly... When she had prayed, Eli had spoken to her, verse 17, saying, go in peace. (coughs) That God is granting your petition. She believes, instantly walks in a place of faith. Verse 18 says she goes her way, she eats, and her face is no longer sad. And then they rose early in the morning and they worshipped. She recognizes that God has, has answered. And then in the process of time, she conceives verse 20 and she bears a son. But this is after she'd prayed, God, if you give me the son, I will give him back to you. Eventually she comes to the point where she is going to give Samuel back to the Lord. And when she weans him at the end of the last chapter, she comes to Eli and says, you know, I'm the woman who was there, who stood by and was praying. I prayed for the child. You granted me this child, and I've given him to the Lord. And at that point, they begin to worship. Now, as they begin to worship, Hannah begins to pray. 
And not only pray, but understand that what we're going to see is this prayer is not only a directive for us, but it's also, in a sense, a prophetic prayer as well. And so we're going to see that it's prophetic in two ways. One, it's speaking forth the heart of God, but at the same time it's going to be um, for speaking something that's going to be happening as, as the very end of our prayer will declare. But in chapter 2, verse 1, it simply opens up, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken. Those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full of were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. And even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many has become feeble. Verse six the Lord kills and make alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich, and he brings low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among the princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For pillars of the earth are the Lord. And he has set the world on them. And then verse 9, he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked he will, will be silent in darkness. For by strength, though man shall prevail, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is her prayer. I want you to understand that where her prayer that she begins to pray begins with instantly speaking of her joy. I love the fact that when she comes before the Lord, she goes, this is who I am and where I am. She doesn't try to hide it. Earlier, she came to the Lord, she was just sorrowful. She was a woman of sorrowful spirits, poured out her soul before the Lord, and now she's joyous, says God, you know, but this is where I am. It's real. I love the fact that she doesn't always have to come to the Lord joyous, but when God moves and she has had her petition answered, and I want you to understand this, and this is huge, and don't mistake this. When she says in verse 1, my heart rejoices in the Lord, she is now giving her child to God. The child isn't going to come home with her ever again. She's leaving her toddler with the Lord, with Eli the priest, and she will not see him in her house. She's leaving this child, and she has the ability to say, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. At this point, she's able to say, I smile at my enemies. Penina. I can even smile at her. Now, she's still going to have kids running around, and I won't have kids running around, but guess what? 
That makes no difference. I know where my son is. And I think it's so important to note here that when she makes this statement, my heart rejoices in the Lord and the worshiping, she has given her son to the Lord. But the first thing she talks about immediately is, in a sense, her joy. Then in verse 2, she speaks of the very glory of God, where she says, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no... There, nor is there any rock like our God. So she first talks about her, her joy. She then speaks of God's glory. She declares that, that he is holy, that there is none like him. And then she goes on and she talks about God as a great equalizer. And so as we go through this, we're going to see that, that she does this back and forth thing over and over again. We're like in verse 4, the bows of the mighty men are broken and those who stumbled are now girded with strength. Do you understand there's a reversal of what was happening? It says in verse 5, those who were full have eaten a lot, have now hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Do you understand? That's showing that God is a great equalizer. He's reversing things that, that where... We think the wicked are prospering. God is going to say what? They're not prospering. When we think that those who are good are, are having a hard time of it, God is going to reverse that as well. So keep in mind that what we're seeing through these portions is that God is an equalizer. The equalizer doesn't always happen on this side of heaven, but make no mistake, God is that great equalizer and that he will in eternity make everything right. And I love the fact that as she begins with her joy and then goes into God's gl glory and then talks about how God through all these things, is this great equalizer. And then at the end, there is this beautiful reference to Jesus. Where there in verse 10, she makes a statement where at the very end, she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The Messiah, the king, Jesus and, and I love the fact that, you know, he will give strength. There is no king right now. You understand? There is no king. There is no Saul. There is no David. And she's saying he will give strength to his king, knowing that there is going to be a time where God is going to rule and reign. And there will be this king, and he is going to be the true king of Israel. We've talked about it before. Jesus Christ is that fourth king of Israel. He is the third through the lineage of David that has ruled over all of Israel. After Solomon, you know, the, the nation of Israel was divided in two. There wasn't one to truly reign over all Israel. And I love the fact that four is the number of balanced truth and three is the number of perfection. And so we see that here Jesus is that king. Now, I want you to, for just a moment, take a look at just how this prayer is laid out. It begins with God's, begins with her, her emotions, her joy, goes into God's glory, talks about God as a great equalizer, and then has a reference to Jesus. What's amazing is this. When you take a look at Scripture, that this pattern of prayer 
is going to be repeated one more time by a woman, by Mary. And what we see is this, and I want to read you her, her, her statement that she makes. And it, it begins there in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. I'm going to read down to verse 56. And we're going to see the same pattern. She talks about her, her spirit is rejoicing. She talks about the very glory of God. And then she goes on to talk about how God is an equalizer. He's going to balance things. And then she goes on and she talks about how her son is going to be the seed that was promised through Abraham. Just, just listen to her prayer. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So we begin to see that she is just full of joy, for he is regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Do you understand? She's saying, man, I'm overwhelmed. I am overwhelmed by, by God and his goodness to me. Tell you what, it's a great way to begin a prayer by being overwhelmed by what God has done, by recognizing that I'm coming to you rejoicing. And immediately we should be thinking, I should not be able to come to you because I'm a sinner. I should have been cast away from you never to come near, and yet you've set your love upon me. You have gone through the work to redeem me, and then you've called me your son. You say I have an inheritance. And so we are the sons and daughters. We are inheritors, and so we should be rejoicing. And I love the fact that as she goes and she just makes that statement, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And then at the end of verse 49 of Luke 1, she says, and holy is his name. She recognizes who he is. Again, the holiness of God, the glory of God. And then she says, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. And so I just, I love the fact that she talks about just God in his glory, not only to her, but he's ready to pour it out. And then she says this in verse 51, and he has shown strength with his arm and he scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts and he's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Do you understand? She's saying, God, you're the equalizer. Those, those who think there's something, you're going to make them nothing. Those who are nothing, you're going to raise them up. And it says this in verse 53. Notice the, 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 the sound of it. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so it, it, I think it's so beautiful to recognize that when you are hungry for God, he's going to fill you. When you say, you know what, I have no need of you, he's going to just let you go hungry. But then it says this, and he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to their fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Not, not the plural, but just to simply, he spoke to Abraham and to his seed. Speaking of, in a sense, that reference to Jesus Christ. And so I love that this here is what Hannah is doing. 
She begins in that same way and, and, and kind of introducing this mode of prayer, beginning with simply her joy, rejoicing. The very fact that we can go before you. Then talking after her rejoicing, say, oh, Lord, I love the fact that, that where she begins to say, Hannah prays in her heart, says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And then knows it. She brings up Peninnah. And she's going to do it multiple times here in this prayer. She goes, I smile at my enemies. And this is the one who, remember in chapter 1, verse 7, year by year she went up to the house of the Lord and she was provoked by her. Peninnah provoked her and provoked her, provoked her and made her miserable. And all of a sudden what? She could say, I can smile at my enemies. They have no power over me. She can say, where's your children? Oh, they're not here. No, they're not. They're before the Lord. And I don't have to worry about them being right here. And so she says, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation, because you have done a work. And then, of course, she goes into that glory of the Lord. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. I love the fact that she talks about God and she uses that term, a rock. The rock, of course, denotes the strength. It's hard to break. It denotes stability. It provokes, it, it sets up a steadfastness. It sets all these thoughts in our heads. It says, there is no one who is steadfast. There's no one who's as stable. There's no one who is as powerful as our rock, God. And then she goes and she again speaks, and I believe this is to Peninnah, as she's rejoicing, she says, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So she can now talk to Peninnah and say, listen, you can say all the things that you want to do, but be careful, because I'm not your judge, God is. And I think it's important to recognize that when the evil speak against us, you don't have to worry about them. Let them say what they're going to say. You don't have to worry about what they say. Why? Because God is going to be the ultimate judge. And I love the fact that it says the Lord is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. We're going to see that in a little bit as we get over to verse 12, where it talked about the sons of Eli were corrupt and they did not know the Lord. And I believe, you know, they need to recognize the Lord is the God of knowledge. You're not going to get something by him. And then by him and through him, all these actions are weighed. And so you're either doing the things with the Lord or you're doing things not with the Lord. And that's just the way it is. You're with the Lord, you're, you're fine. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're doing it without the Lord. Then you've been weighed in the balance and found empty, found wanting. And it's the important thing, and as we were looking at it, it's just so important that what God wants more than anything is just for us to be with him to go through and to live life with him and to fellowship with him. And whatever we do, we do it what? With him and for him. 
for his glory, for his honor. And it's not about trying to make sure that, that I'm doing all these things because when we do the work and God's not there, what's the work for? Do you understand? I mean, it may benefit something, but it doesn't glorify God. And ultimately, our one desire and God's desire is what? His glory above all things. So when we look to his glory, we think, oh, this has to be your glory. This has to be your glory. You look at the temple and say, this is your glory. But guess what? When God wasn't in the temple, what was it? It was a building. It was no longer the glory. Do you understand? Everything is about God and his presence, including the work that we do. If I'm up here and I'm giving a message and the spirit of God is not in the message, guess what it is? Words. Just words. If it's not the spirit of God that's doing it, it's just words. And I think it's so important to recognize, and this is so important because it, it, she makes the statement, be careful, be careful, be careful. God, he is the God of knowledge. He knows when you're doing it for him. He knows when you're doing it on your own. And, and he is by him, by his presence in that action, this is what he said, the actions are weighed. It's, 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 if he's there, praise God. If he's not there, you need to get him involved. And I love the fact that it isn't about trying to always get it done. It's about what? Being with him more than getting it done. And, and so it's, it's one of those things. I, I shared recently, I was referring to when my grandkids come over Will he be there doing leaves or, or, or doing the snow removal or something? But this, this, what happens is this. When they come over in the wintertime and I got to go out and shovel the snow, and it's, it's kind of interesting because this last um, Christmas when they were over visiting, it snowed and I needed to, to get some snow done. So we spent like 15, 20 minutes getting them all bundled up. And they came outside, and they had these little tiny snow shovels. And, and so they were starting to shovel. And, of course, after about two minutes, they were done shoveling. And then we started giving them snow rides on the shovel. So they'd sit on the shovel. I'd pull them down the, 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 the slope, and they were just going through. And after about 20 minutes, 25 minutes of that, they were cold and wet and wanted to go back in the house. So back in the house they go. And where am I now? I'm out shoveling. And then they were like, wow, we shoveled them. We sure did. We, we got that snow. And, and keep in mind that while we're doing the snow was going everywhere. Snow was going. It went on places where I shoveled, where, where I didn't shovel. And so it was just being with them. And they wanted to just be with me. And even though they didn't get any real snow removal accomplished, we had time and we laughed and it was fun. And you know what? That's all I wanted. I didn't want them to just, hey, you know, I'm going to sit in the house and I'm going to sip on some hot coffee and, and hot cocoa and you go outside and you shovel. You, you got enough kids now, you know, you get to get this done. That wasn't the heart. And I love the fact that it's about what? Being with God. And now in verse three, where she, she, she weighed that out and says, listen, for God is the God of knowledge. You, you be careful, be careful, be careful. And so in verse 3, says, talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. Don't think that you are better than me because you had kids. 
It isn't about having the kids. It's about what? What are the kids? <laughs> Mine is given to the Lord. And so at this point in verse 4, she says, the bows of the mighty men are broken. So those who were powerful and oppressing are no longer powerful and oppressing. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Do you understand that those who thought they were something are now nothing? Those who were very much nothing are now strong. Those who were full, in other words, have eaten all the bread they wanted, now they're hiring themselves out for food. And so it's one of those things where it says, you who were full have now hired yourselves out for bread. That you're trying to constantly saying, listen, I've got to, where before it was always, I was always full, I always had food, and now I have to sell myself, my labor, in order to get bread. It's just not coming in as easily as it was. And she goes, and not only that, she says, but the hungry have ceased to hunger. And I love this. Because what we see here, and if, if you refer this to Panina, like you had all these children, you had all these children, guess what? And it's not enough for you. I'm full. I've had, I've had my, my, my son Samuel. I've given him to the Lord, and I'm full. And it's so wonderful. And then she goes on to, to say, this beautiful thing at the end of verse 5, even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. She says, listen, I am having kids and I am my vitality. I'm having kids and I have energy and youthfulness and joy and strength for these kids. And Penina, you look kind of worn out right now. You don't look like you're having as much fun as you cling to. And I just love the fact where she says, even the barren has born seven. Now, when it comes to the barren is born seven, you know as well as I do that in, in verse 21 of this passage that we're in of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, it makes a statement, the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. We know she has a total of six. But when she says even the barren has born seven, the number seven is what? As you know, the number of completion. So she's saying that those who are barren have borne all the children that God wanted them to in the completeness of his will. And so she's not saying I'm going to have seven prophetically like that's the exact number. She's saying that God is going to complete in me the number of children that he would have me to have. That's a beautiful statement. And then, of course, she says, I'm going to have the children but, but you, Penina, you who have many, <laughs> you just look tired right now. And so, verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes the poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. So you understand how God constantly is saying, I'm in control of everything. There's nothing that happens outside. Look at verse 6 again. The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. See what I'm saying? He does both. He's in charge. The Lord brings down to the grave and brings up. He's in charge. The Lord makes the poor and he makes the rich. He's in charge. He raises, 
he brings low and he lifts up. And once again, we see God, he always is the equalizer. He's in charge of all these things. He raises, verse 8, the poor from the dust. He lifts the beggar from the ash heap, and he sets them amongst princes and makes them inherit the throne of glory. I love the fact that she says, I could be at the lowest point, and God is going to raise me up. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there are going to be times that we're in the valley and times that we're in the mountain, but ultimately God is going to do what? He's always going to bring us to him. If he's with us on the mountain, it's an incredible mountain. If he's with us in the valley, guess what? It's an incredible valley. Only because he's there with me, and that's what makes it important, is that when you're there with God. And then goes on to say, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. God is the one who's in charge of everything, and he set the world upon them. In other words, that God has established the earth and everything that's going on in them. He will guard the feet, verse 9, of his saints, but the wicked will be silent in darkness. He's going to protect his own, and the wicked he's going to remove from his presence, and he's going to put them in darkness, and their prayers will not be heard in heaven. It's absolutely amazing to see that, that they are, are going to be silent. Now, we understand they're going to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. They're, they're, not, they're not quiet, but none of their, their, their prayers will go before the Lord. He's the ultimate judge of all things. And then he says, she goes, for by strength no man shall prevail. The arm of flesh shall not sustain you. And then she says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. And from heaven he will thunder against them, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So she talks about God being this absolute, mighty, and perfect judge. And then she says this, he will give strength to his king. I love that. Now she understands that there will be a king. And as we recognize what's going on, there are passages that are there in the Old Testament that teach us, and I believe that she understood that, that there would be a time that God would raise up a king. A couple of verses I just want you to be aware of. The first is found in Genesis chapter 17, and I want to read verse 6 and verse 16 where God, speaking to Abram, makes this statement, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, verse 6. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Do you understand? He promised Abraham that he would be the father of nations, and in those nations that there would be kings. In verse 16, he says basically the same thing. And I will bless her and give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations, kings, and peoples shall be from her. And so I love the fact that he speaks it through Sarah, his wife, that they would have these children, nations, and in those nations, kings. God would speak the thing, same thing to Joseph there when he was there at Bethel. In Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, God also, and also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation 
and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So we understand that these things were true, these things were going to happen, and that God had already spoken that these things would happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Nope, I'm missing something here. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, that's where I'm at. Deuteronomy 17, 14, he says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and you say, and here's what they're going to say when they get into the land. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. And you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses from one among your brethren. You shall set him as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And so he gives them, this is the king this is his rules, and you are going to have a king. So eventually they are going to have a king, and I love the fact that here Hannah in her prayers recognizes that there is going to be this king, and this king is going to be the anointed one. The king is going to be the Messiah. And so she prophetically makes this understanding. And then the beautiful thing is this, that Samuel anoints the king who would be in the lineage of that anointed king. He's going to be the one to anoint David. Well, verse 11, it says, And Elkanah went to his house to Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. A couple things I want you to note here. I want you to, one, recognize that there is going to be a contrast and there is, in a sense, this sandwich, these two ends of the, the sandwich, the two loaf ends, is verse 11 and verse 18. Because verse 11 says, And Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Verse 18, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. You see these two things, Samuel ministering to the Lord and ministering before the Lord. Now, what's inside the sandwich? Well, I'll be honest with you, it's a nasty sandwich. The, the, the ends are good, the bread is good, but the filling is not so good. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. I want you to see the contrast. The child is ministering to the Lord, the child ministered before the Lord, and these men who were actual sons of Eli did not know the Lord. It's incredible to me to see as this begins to go through that it simply says that they were corrupt. They didn't know the Lord. 
Not only did they not know the Lord, but verse 25 says why they didn't. It says, if one man sins against another, God will judge them. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Why didn't they know the Lord? They wouldn't listen to their dad. They wouldn't listen to the authority here on earth. So, of course, they were going to listen to the authority that was there above them. And I think it's so important to recognize what's happening here. They are corrupt. It says in verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. The offering of God, they abhorred it. They hated it. Why did they hate it? Because they said, why give it to God? That's a waste. Give it to me. Isn't that interesting? Why give it to God? That's a waste. I should have it. It's, it's one of those things where that is a mindset of many in the tithing and offering to the Lord. Why give it to God? That's a waste. I should have it. Don't give to God any more than, than what we should. You can't give to God any extra. It's all just limit it because if you give it to God, it's a waste. I know what to do with it. And I think it's so important to recognize here that this is what happened. And why do they think that giving it to God is a waste? Verse 12, because they really don't know the Lord. The more you know of God, it's like nothing, nothing you can give to God is ever a waste. You can give to him the time and, and he's going to honor you. You can give to him the possessions and he's going to honor you. It's, he is worthy of what? Everything. But when you can't give it to God and you guys say, no, this is my time and this is my stuff, then all of a sudden why you, you abhor the offering to the Lord. He's not worth it. The kingdom isn't worth it. What he's doing isn't worth it. I love the fact that when you recognize, oh, yes, God, you are worth it. This is, you are so worth everything and more. So I want you to recognize that sandwich because in verse 11, the child ministered before the Lord. In verse 18, the child Samuel ministered before the Lord. He ministered to the Lord. And then after verse 11 is that beginning the sandwich, the sons of Eli were corrupt. In verse 17, just before 18, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. You understand how this is really a horrible sandwich. It's like having two wonderful pieces of bread and having a manure sandwich. It's just not good. You've got this contrast between Samuel ministering to the Lord, verse 11, going before the Lord in verse 18, and then the sons of Eli and their corruption. Well, let's look at where their corruption led them. Let's look at to who they are and what they did. When it comes to these young men, I think it's important to, again, recognize where, remember in verse 3, we said the Lord is the God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. And they're going to, they are going to be weighed. And so we see here that within this aspect that's going on, what they're doing 
And what they're trying to accomplish is this. In chapter 3, we see in verses 12 through 14 what God is going to do to these sons of Eli. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken to him. Chapter 3, verse 12. All that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Amazing, God says, I'm done with you. And your family. An incredible thing that we recognize God is doing here as he deals with these corrupt sons of Eli. So now that we understand the beauty of verse 11, how the child ministers to the Lord before Eli the priest. So Eli sees this young boy and his ministering to the Lord. The contrast, verse 12, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come in with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand. And while the meat was boiling... And then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. At this point, what the custom was, and to be honest with you, I've I've looked and I've looked and I've looked where this custom began. And it's not in scripture. All it says is this was a custom. Somehow it went from what God had desired the priest to have and to partake. It changed into this where the priest would take from either the pan or the pot. And so as the meat was boiling, he'd take this flesh hook. Now, the flesh hook was part of the the, the temple that they had made there in Exodus. The flesh hook was one of those things. In Solomon's temple, they would make a golden flesh hook, incredible, but all a flesh hook is this. It's a fork. It's a three-pronged fork. You stab it in the, in, the, in the pot, that piece of meat is yours. And it's to sustain you. It's just a, while you're serving, you're hungry, you don't muzzle the ox while they tread the grain. While you're there, you've got something. If you're hungry, you flesh hook, it's yours. And so they simply said, this is what we're going to do. And it's interesting that that's how they would do it, and that would become the normal of what they would do. However, the sons of Eli took it beyond that. And so it says here in verse 15, also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him that they would, should really burn the fat first, then you shall take as much as your heart desires. And he would answer them, no, but you give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord. 
because they abhor the offering. What was happening was this, that when you would take the flesh hook and you would stick it in the pot and you would take out that piece of meat that was boiling, that it meant that you would eat it now. What they were wanting was this, as they say, no, 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 we, we don't want it burned, we don't want it cooked. But it says this in verse 15, before they burned the fat, before they put it to the fire, they said, give me meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. In other words, what they were doing was this. They weren't simply eating the meat. They were taking the meat from every single offering, not just eating when they got hungry and the rest is for the Lord and for the person. They're like, no, no, this is for me. I get, I get it off of everyone. I get it. And I want raw meat so I don't have to eat it now, but I can collect it through the day and I can sell it at the end of the day. Do you understand when you're having raw meat with the fat, you can sell that. But when you have the cooked meat, you can't do that. You can't have the cooked meat and then hold on to it all day and then sell it. No, if you're going to take it from there, what it says is that one, you put the fork in, you're eating it now. When you want the raw meat, it's saying, I'm going to take of this offering from God and I want to profit from it. Not just partake of it and strengthen me in it. I want to profit from it. And this is what was happening. Now, now keep in mind that what they're saying is that we want to do this before they burn the fat. A couple of verses that I do want you to be aware of, of when the priests were allowed to eat, how the priests were allowed to eat, those types of things. I want to share with you initially a passage in Leviticus chapter 7. And in Leviticus chapter 7, I want you to recognize that what it says is this. There is a law, and when they do these offerings, it says this, verse 2, in the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the trespass offering. Its blood they shall not sprinkle. Their blood it, he shall sprinkle all around on the altar, and he shall offer it from... He shall offer from it, all, from it all its fat, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe that is attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove and the priest shall burn them on the altar as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every priest among may eat it and they shall be eaten in the holy place. It is most holy. There's something to be understood about what is the reality to how God wants these sacrifices done. There's a passage in Leviticus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it says this, and then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails, the fat that is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove, and Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood, as on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now understand, all this fat stuff goes to God. Leviticus 3 verse 16 makes this statement, the priest shall burn them on the altar as food 
an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. God says the fat is mine. And, and I know what you're thinking. The fat is the best part. You know, when you get a steak, you just don't want meat. You want marbled. You want the fat to be just adding its juices to the meat. And you're like, why does God, why does God get all the best? I should get the best. I want the fat. I want to have that. And yet, the amazing thing is, what have we learned? Fat clogs our arteries. Fat is horrible. We, we love it. It's good, but it's horrible for us. And I love what God does. He says, listen, what you like the best isn't always the healthiest for you. And so the worst of this fat, give it to me. I, I want this. And, and there's, there's this beautiful passage in Psalm 66, verse 15, where it's just beautiful psalm. Um, and it, it makes this statement. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. He says, man, you love the fattest animals. You love the fat. And, and I love it where God says, it's mine. It's mine. And when you would roast off and you would burn off the fat, keep in mind, some of it would flavor the meat, but the worst of it would be what? Taken away from you. It's God's. Now, what they were doing is this. When it comes to how the priest should take of the meat, there's a passage in Leviticus 7, verses 31 through 34. Let me read it to you. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast, in other words, the ribs, shall be Aaron and his sons. So he gets the ribs. Now, now you know that as you go to a meat store, the ribs aren't what? They're not the most expensive cut. There's a lot of bone in it. Now you got meat with it, and you do ribs right. Man, they're amazing. But you're not getting a lot of meat on that. But it says here, the priest, you get to have that. The priest, it says this. Verse 31 of, of Leviticus 7. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons, and also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offering. He among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offering of the fat shall have the right thigh for his part. For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh and the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. So keep in mind that a workman is worthy of his hire. And what he says is this, you can have two cuts. You can have the ribs and then you can have the thigh. I'll give you those two cuts. And those are for the ones who are doing the work. Now what here they would do is they say, no, no, no. We're going to take the best cuts the fatty cuts, we're going to do this before we cook them. I don't want to put them in there. And so verse 15 also, back in Samuel 2.15, before they burn the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the men who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, but he will not take the boiled meat from you, but raw. 
give me meat for roasting, but I want raw meat so I can either roast it or not. And I love the fact that what they thought is that they should have the wages they wanted versus what God says, these are your wages. And so things had changed, and we could see how in their offering, it wasn't to offer to God. It was what? It should be mine. It should be mine. It should be mine. As a matter of fact, they were thinking what? None of it should go to God. And we can give him a fatty lobe. I'm okay with that. Give him a fatty kidney. I'm okay with that. I should have it all. And this is interesting because they were so corrupt. They abhorred the offering of the Lord. When they, when they said, this has to go to God, they're like, why does it have to go to God? It should go to me. I could benefit from it. I should have more and more and more. This is a great gig. But what was happening was this. They were corrupt. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't recognize the value of offering and serving the Lord. And so we see how corrupt they were. And in their corruption, then it contrasts back again in verse 18 to Samuel. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. When she came up with her husband and offered the yearly sacrifice, and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you, give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home, and the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, this child Samuel grew before the Lord. I want you to see the contrast between the sons of Eli and Samuel. All sons. But what is interesting is this. The sons of Eli served themselves. This is mine, this is mine, this is mine. And they provided for themselves. They go to people and say, listen, if you don't do this, if you don't, don't give me, I'm going to take it from you. And you must give it now because if you don't, I'm going to take it by force. Do you understand that they took for themselves, they provided for themselves, they served themselves. And what Samuel does is this. He serves the Lord. And so amazingly, and I don't want you to miss this, while he serves the Lord, the Lord provides for Samuel. Look at what happens here, and this is so important. In verse 19, it says how God provides for Samuel. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year. Do you understand? God says, Samuel, you need this. Samuel, you need this. And, and I have a provision for you. And it's going to come, and every year that you are outgrowing one, I'm going to give you something new, a new outfit, a new outfit. Do you understand the difference between these two groups, between the sons of Eli and Samuel? Samuel simply wants to serve God, and God provides for Samuel. And I love this next point because in verse 20, and it sets things into perspective, and we covered this last week a little bit, but I want you to see how it speaks here in verse 20. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. 
doesn't say wives. He doesn't bless both Hannah and Peninnah. He only blesses Elkanah and Hannah. Where's Peninnah? Nowhere seen here. And amazing what happens is this, and he makes this prayer, the Lord gives you descendants from this woman. Not, not your wives, only from her. Do you understand? He only blesses Elkanah and his wife, singular Hannah. And it's interesting that although Peninnah was mentioned first, a lot of scholars do believe that Hannah was his first wife, that he loved her, and then when she was barren, that he went and married someone else. I need to have children. And so she gives him children, thinking that she's something, sort of like Hagar did with Sarah, but really wasn't loved like Hannah was. And now we see that Hannah takes her rightful place again, where Eli comes and says, oh, the Lord gives you descendants from this woman, and he blesses Elkanah and Hannah, not Peninnah. Not, not, not Hannah and Peninnah, just Hannah. And so he says, would God give you descendants from this woman for the, the gift that you have given to the Lord? And they would go home. And guess what? God would give Hannah children. So much as she would have, again, amazingly, three more sons and two daughters. She would have five more children. Now it moves on to this, and I want you to recognize in verse 22, it says, Eli was very old. At this point, according to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 15, we see just how old he was. Eli was 98 years old. He's 98 years old. And his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And now we see a little bit of why his sons were doing the work. He was old. He couldn't see. He's 98 years old. And on top of being 98 years old and he can't see very well, verse 18 of 1 Samuel 4 says that Eli fell off the seat backwards and by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. So he wasn't just an old guy, but he was a big guy and he couldn't see very well. So when it says Eli was very old and he heard all his sons did to Israel, I don't know if he couldn't see, <laughs> but he heard. He knows what's going on. He's aware of what's going on. And rather than getting rid of his sons, he allows them to continue in sin. And he doesn't deal with the problem. He, he tries to address it by speaking, as we're going to see, but he doesn't truly deal with the problem. Eli was very old. And he heard everything his sons had done to all Israel and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle and meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And now we see their corruption Verses verse 26, and the child Samuel grew in stature in favor with both the Lord and men. And the man of God then comes to Eli. 
Samuel is there growing. He's growing in, in stature and in favor with God and man as he's growing taller. He's growing into manhood. He's serving the Lord. God is being blessed by him. And God is then blessing him. And so we see that this is that contrast between the, the, the sons that here Eli does not control and Samuel. And then in verse 27, a man of God comes to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? So as this man of God comes to Eli... He goes, thus says the Lord. He's speaking forth a word of God. And this is God then speaking. Did I, clear, did I not clearly reveal myself? I showed you who I was. Your sons don't know me. I showed you who I was. I showed you the respect that I was due. I revealed myself to you. I, you know, Hophni and Phinehas, gone. Do you understand? And so we, we, we begin to see here how God would begin to speak to the priest, show the priest who he was and how he moved and, and begin to speak over and over again. And even when it came to Nadab and Abihu and the sin that they have, what they brought profane fire. God wiped them out. I'm a God to be worshipped. I revealed myself to the house of your fathers where they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house. Absolutely amazing that you should be teaching your sons. You should be teaching your, you know, the, the sons the way to go. And yet, even though you should be teaching them what? You don't know. You don't know. I love it how Paul would say to the, or the author of Hebrews would say to the, to the in Hebrews, he said, of whom I have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and come to need milk and not solid food. He should have been a teacher. He should have been the leader. And yet he wasn't. But I love it what this man of God says in verse 28. Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings, the children of Israel made by fire? So understand, I, I raised up the priests. I brought the priesthood in order. And then he says in verse 29, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? And make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. He says, you guys are taking all the best and you're, you're abusing my place to come and worship. Well, verse 30, therefore the God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever, but now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God has done for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. I'm going to wipe you out. 
But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he will walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and will bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. God is going to judge. He says, I will completely judge all of your descendants. Now, a couple of things. I'm going to take you on a little journey here, and I want you to just gravitate to what I'm about to say. We understand that according to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3, talks about the two sons of Eli. And it says, also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. They were there. God has also made this statement that what I'm going to do in verse 34 is going to be assigned to you that will come upon you. Hophni and Phinehas in one day shall die, both of them. Now, when we come to an understanding that both Hophni and Phinehas are going to die, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, it again points out, so the people of Israel sent to Shiloh, and they might bring from them the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that dwells between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, I'm going to jump all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 3. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 3. It makes this statement. Ahijah. The son of Ahitub. Now, mark that note that something. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. Ahitub is our main guy. Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So now we see that Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, who is the son of Phineas? Now keep in mind, remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, Eli was very old and he heard everything that his sons had did and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Phineas had illegitimate children. And then through the illegitimate children, we see that according to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 3, one of them eventually would be named Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. So Ahitub is our main guy. Now, why do I want you to understand that? Because in 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 18, and I want to read down to verse 22, it says this, and this is where here David is fleeing. Saul wants to kill him. And the king Saul said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest 
and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. Do you understand that these priests who were there at Nob were descendants of the sons of Eli. And one of them was the son of Phinehas. And so we see here, verse 20, one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. So one of the descendants now of Phinehas does get away. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed a priest. And David said to Abiathar, I know I knew that day that when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul and I caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. So at this point we begin to see that there was one man who escaped and he would be Abiathar and he would be the priest. Now, one last passage to be aware of. 1 Kings chapter 2. In 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 26 through 27 it makes this statement. And to Abiathar the priest... The king, and of course this is Solomon now, said, Go to Ananoth, to your fields, for you are deserving of death. Because keep in mind that he chose to go with Solomon's brother and in not, not to stand with him. He went against David. And he says to Abiathar, the one that had escaped, he said, you know, go to your own fields, you're deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carry the ark of the Lord before my father David, and because you were afflicted. Every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abiathar from being a priest of the Lord that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. We can see the journey, what happens, and when this man of God came and says, listen, all your descendants, they're going to die. And if anyone doesn't die, he's not going to be able to fulfill the priesthood. And so we see absolutely everything that God had said through this man of God came to pass. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a reality that God wants you and I to know there's one thing that's important, one thing that's important, that's having me with you in whatever you do. And that's what we, we came back to at the very beginning where it says is, the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. There's one thing is to have God with you as you serve. And that's what we see that, that, that Samuel begins to do. Verse 18, Samuel ministered before the Lord. Verse 11, the child Samuel ministered to the Lord. It was, you understand where he was. He was just before the Lord and ministering to the Lord. And then, verse 26, he grew in statute and favor with both the Lord and men. But those who didn't know the Lord, those who abhorred, saying, God, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, and said, you're not worthy, I'm worthy, these are the ones that God says, you're done. You're done. And not only are you done, but the successive generations are done as well, because that's not a heart. 
That's not a heart that's going to serve me and continue to serve me. And I love the fact that we begin to see these contrasts. And make no mistake, these contrasts continue through this book of Samuel as we look to the contrast of, of Saul and David eventually coming as well. Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for this word. The contrast of, of Samuel and the sons of Eli. The contrast of just Hannah and her prayer and Peninnah. One is recognized and one is not. One truly didn't give to you an honor to you and say, these things are yours, Lord. Hannah so gave to you. What a sacrifice. Her son. Her son. And when she gave away her son, she rejoiced and she worshiped. Oh, may we recognize that as we give to you of our time and everything else that we have as we're stewards of everything that's you. It's amazing, Lord, how when so often people give to you that they're saddened. Oh, I got to give a tithe. Or, oh, I got to give my time to the church. Or, I got to do this. And they don't rejoice. I, I think it's, it's because like Hophni and Phineas, they don't really truly know you, Lord. May we just draw closer to you, get to know you more and more, honor you and glorify you, spending time with you and being before you, and that all that we do, we do it unto you and to your glory. Teach us these truths we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen.